Good evening from the UAE and welcome to the In Squash podcast, episode 64. And episode 64 brings us Nick Matthew. Uh, We've been trying uh, for a few months to get Nick on and uh, got lucky enough to get uh, get things done here while he's in uh, New York City for the Tournament of Champions, 8 a.m. in New York. 5 p.m. here that's that was the uh, the time difference so it worked out perfectly uh nick came on and uh, he was a legend and is a legend of the game um his uh, his his uh, resume is very impressive uh three british open championships three world championships three world team championships three commonwealth gold medals 10 british open finals world number one the list goes on 35 uh psa uh tour titles to his name uh nick's uh i mean doing the research for for this and then uh coming up with questions to ask him i uh, i must have had about 20 pages of notes so i had to pare that down but hopefully uh, what i've come up with i know you're going to really enjoy uh, as i mentioned uh, he's in new york for the tournament of champions and if you've been watching those matches you may have noticed him there uh talking to uh, a few of the players uh in first round, obviously, he was with uh, George Parker. He's uh, fairly close to him, and and George has his ear, and uh, I think they're working hard to try uh, to help George. George played a, a great match. He's a great talent, and uh, we all saw uh, what sort of happened there with the conduct stroke, and uh, Nick uh, comes on to talk a little bit about that. Uh, we also talk about officiating in the game these days, and, and Nick has some uh, interesting opinions on that. Uh, as well, uh, the James Wilstrup uh, rivalry. Uh, for many of you, uh, we uh, you you know about uh, that, but James elaborates on it, which is quite interesting. Um, and the two of them are actually going on a uh, UK head-to-head tour uh, at some point in the near future, assuming uh, James uh, uh, retires. But James is uh, playing this week in New York City. Uh, his first round or a second round match maybe tonight against uh, Ali Farag. So that'll be a, a good one. Uh, we also talk, uh, we look back at his early years, uh, Nick's early years on tour, his, uh, the influence of uh, being a Yorkshireman, what that means uh, for, the, for the Brits out there who listen. Of course, you know what it means. Uh, but for those of us across the pond and, and around the world, uh, what does it mean to be a Yorkshireman? Well, Nick, uh, Nick uh, tells us a bit about that. Uh, the influence of his of his family on his game, uh, the influence of his first coach, uh, who many of you may not know. Well, he tells us a bit about him as well, and then we also take uh, questions uh, from from the uh, podcast listeners, a, a few questions from from you guys as well. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode 64 with the great Nick Matthew. All right. Well, this is a uh, welcome to episode 64 of the In Squash podcast, and uh, really, really delighted to have uh, uh, this guest on today's uh, show. Uh, he's a winner of 35 PSA Tour titles, three-time world champion and the first ever Englishman to do so, three-time uh, gold medalist at the Commonwealth Games, three-time British Open champion, 10-time British national champion, and now uh, he's running uh, the Nick Academy, uh, Nick Matthew Academy, amongst uh, other initiatives that he's into in retirement. Nick Matthew is my guest. Nick, great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Jerry. Yes, um, with the time difference as well. I know you're over there in Dubai and I'm here at TOC. So uh, it's uh, an evening for you, morning for me. So, um, yeah, it's nice to be connecting across the world. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, we did actually meet very briefly. Uh, I had a short little interview there with you at the uh, Super Series uh, final, which I'll get into a bit later. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that. That was in the uh, the media room there. <laughs> yes, I, of course. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't expecting to be there that week, so it was a big bonus for me. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll talk to you about that later because uh, uh, we got a couple of questions from the from the fan base out there. We'll lob you a question from uh, one of the Facebook fans. Um, but anyways, uh, wow, that resume—it it was a mouthful. Uh, how did that sound to you, by the way? Yeah, every time I hear it, there's a lot of threes in there, isn't there? I I spent the best part of my last season sort of privately. I had a bit of um, something called a Project 4 going on. And I was trying to get to four of, I didn't really care which one of those it was. Any of them would have been great. And it was my goal to try and win a fourth one of something. Unfortunately, it didn't happen. Right. And uh, 
but um, yeah, I, I would have certainly signed for that at the beginning of my career. You know, wouldn't have imagined that in my wildest dreams. To for be, sure. To be honest. Yeah, the number three certainly looks good down there on the paper as well. Three, 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 and and, and of course the number that stands well, out. Well, four would have looked better, but <laughs> it would have, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But ten, uh, try to match ten. Uh, ten. Ten is a, is a good one. A few people have asked me whether I'm going to play the British Nationals this year in Manchester in February, and I think you know I don't need to kill myself. Ten, ten's a nice number. I think if I'd have had nine, then I might have taken a shot maybe one more time. But I'm more than delighted with ten. For sure, yeah. That that's a that's a Jahangir and Jansher Khan uh, number, ten. Well, not quite. Jahangir was on five hundred and fifty-five, I think. So there was some way to go for that one. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you're in uh, NYC for the TOC uh, at the moment, and uh, uh, now uh, you've been to the final there, uh, I think, on six occasions. Uh, how does it feel to be there now, not vying for for a title this time around? Yeah, that finals night at TOC is one of the, if not the most special evening in world squash, I think. You know, the atmosphere is uh, pretty electric. Um, I made the mistake, actually, the last time I got to the final in, I think it was 2016, I made the mistake of thinking that the final was earlier than what it was. It was an 8.30 start and I got down to the court about 6.30 thinking the girls were seven and then I was following on and uh, <laughs> I, I, at first hand I had a chance to soak it up and you feel that buzz literally from two three hours before and um, yeah it's pretty sort of warming up under those stands you can sort of feel the energy seeping down to you there's not much room in that in that station you know one of the yeah. one of the downsides of that tournament is there's pretty much nowhere to warm up there's nowhere to go for any private time but the players you know swap that for that amazing atmosphere that it creates in the station and, and I was there last night even for sort of the first and second rounds in the evening the atmosphere gets pretty raucous and they're the sort of occasions that you remember fondly at the end of your career you know absolutely I, yeah I watched a bit well, I've been watching ever since uh was it 96 when power won his first one he beat um the guy from Australia but uh anyways I, I even remember it back then but when you look at the uh, the front wall uh, and you see sort of spectators back there. They're not people who've actually paid for seats. They're just standby standers by, aren't they? Uh, walking by the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very unique, I think, with that in certainly the squash world. You know, perhaps the sporting world. You know that they just open that out and that creates a unique atmosphere. Sometimes it's about twenty people deep. That front wall, people sort of trying to look over people's shoulders to see and. There's the dining area, the Champions Club, the bars and the TV screens going on at the back of the court that you can come down and have a beer and the who's who of the sort of squash world tend to uh, congregate in that area. So it's nice to be around the tournament and see some and good friends outside the court this year. Oh, definitely. Uh, and I'm going to uh, ask you a little bit about the, the Champions uh, Lounge later because you did uh, uh, bring that up on, on your own podcast uh, <laughs> on the most recent one. So I, I do have a question about that. We'll I'm already say, having to remind people that I won things. You know, I'm, I feel like I've been retired for 20 years already. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, guess, I guess that, you know, when you step away from the game and you're, you're just new to this, I guess that's something you you might uh, might do a little bit in the beginning, just sort of try to remind people. That, that picture there, honest. I didn't <laughs> win this, let me in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, Nick, if you don't mind, I'd like to look back a little bit uh, uh, at your earlier days, if um, if you don't mind. Now, you're from, you're a proud Yorkshireman, uh, as, uh, yeah. as we know. Um, now, for the Brits, obviously, this means uh, there's context there. But for a guy like me, even even though I work in Dubai and there are plenty of Brits around, I really don't know what that means. So, what what does it mean to say to when we hear hear the wolf has uh, has uh, the Yorkshire grit? I, I, I'm not sure if I've got that right or not. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a good question. I'm not actually sure. I think it's you know traditionally. <clears throat> Yorkshire, certainly parts of Yorkshire, including Sheffield, where I'm from, were sort of very much working class. Sheffield was a steel industry and right. there was lots of association with, I guess, Sheffield steel and Yorkshire grit. And 
yeah, very, you know, there was lots of coal mining and working class people. I think it, it somehow originated from there. You know, we're very proud of our heritage. For example, the Yorkshire cricket team back in the day you had to be born in Yorkshire to qualify to play for that team. They okay. didn't accept any oh, yeah. foreigners as it were, <laughs> in those days. And right. Foreigners. Yeah, yeah, you know, there was the War of the Roses with Lancashire where there were lots of rivalries and yeah, we almost quite uh, ferociously proud of our of our county and our heritage about it pretty much in our eyes being the 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 best county in England and it oh. certainly has a fantastic sporting and squash heritage and you know I've been I've been proud to sort of maintain that in my own in my own way now the uh, I would imagine I, I mean I, I I'm quite good friends with a lot of uh, uh, Englishmen and they they speak of you know the county squash and that they got to this certain level in county squash so did that sort of proud uh, that, that that proudness uh, come through uh, within the county squash uh, rivalries that you had in England, uh, that that same thing that you had with the cricket uh, that you mentioned. Yeah, well, my mum didn't leave Yorkshire in the last few months of her pregnancy with me, just in case um, I was born outside of the county. So that's how proud uh, <laughs> that's how right. proud we are. And um, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I always I always remember it. As a junior, we were always proud to sort of put on that white rose tracksuit, Yorkshire's the white rose, and we were very, very proud as a team to carry on traditions. And there was a lot of, we knew the the history and the legacies that generations had put, had left sort of us before, and we were always really proud to pull on that jersey. And I think that was something I definitely remember from the junior days. And I've got a lot of friends um, still from their junior, even in New York here, a guy, called Johnny Smith is the head pro of the union club where I always stay every year in New York and, and Johnny and I played juniors together in Yorkshire from the age of eight oh, so wow. there's lots of friend, friendships that have lasted the test of time through those carry days that's great that's great now um, I'm guessing I could be wrong here but I'm guessing your dad and your granddad could both be a Yorkshireman as well um, well actually not my mum my mum and I um, up until my daughter was born, were the only people of my immediate family who were out and out Yorkshire. I say Yorkshireman, but my mum's obviously not a Yorkshire man. A Yorkshire folk. Yeah, Yorkshire my, dad folk was yeah. born, my dad was born in the Midlands in a place called Daventry and moved to Sheffield University. My granddad was half Welsh and actually played rugby um, for Cardiff and numerous teams in Wales. So, he, they had a bit of a different heritage, but my mum's family was fiercely Yorkshire. Okay, okay. I, I was going to, I was getting to uh, perhaps suggesting that they had that uh, that same grip, but I'm sure they did in in, in other ways. They had a big uh, impact on your development. Uh, my dad's an adopted Yorkshireman. We'll give him that. We'll give him that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, now you were. Uh, you were highly uh, respected amongst the the players on tour for the hard work uh, 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 that you put off put in off the court. Often voted as the, the fittest guy uh, uh, around uh, amongst your peers. Uh, clearly, these were qualities that maybe your dad and your granddad instilled in you uh, at, at a young age. Uh, do you have any sort of moments that stand out as sort of younger moments that you have that you reflect on, where this type of work ethic, championship work ethic. Uh, you learned from them? Yeah, my dad was a PE teacher and I just remember playing sport all the time. We'd go on a weekend even, and even with my granddad, we'd go on a weekend and my dad would play cricket or football for you know the local teams and I'd be on the sidelines playing whatever sport we were at with my granddad and we'd be kicking the ball, we'd be playing cricket and sort of progressed from there and I just wanted to always be fit and I did cross country and in the summer when I was at school, my dad took me and we had sort of little training programs. I used to run track with him. And what was weird is I wanted to do it myself. I, I'm always wary about telling these stories because it made my dad sound like he was a bit of a pushy parent, making me run right. track. And if I didn't do it, then I wouldn't get any dinner. You know, it wasn't like that at all. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. I always wanted to do it because I saw the benefit of it, not only in my squash, but 
in all the sports that I played at that age. You know, I wasn't, I was never the most talented footballer, for example, but in midfield, I could cover every blade of grass sort of 10 times over and get end to end and became a useful team player because of that. And yeah. it was a sort of niche I found for myself, not just in, in squash, but I found it kept me mentally alert, even at cricket, being the captain, being healthy, being in shape and being fit. It made my mind feel like it wasn't fatiguing and I could think clearly under pressure, things that you realise what you're doing later. But at the time, you don't realise maybe this is happening. It's only with hindsight. But it sort of stood me in good stead for that squash career that came later on. Right, right. Now, you also, uh, at that time, I, I, I'm not sure if it was a BBC video or it might have been one of the other British uh uh, networks, but uh, there was a video where you you began to talk about your former coach, your junior coach, Mark Hornby, and, right. uh, yeah. and he was developed. He developed you. Uh, he took you quite away, all the way to a British junior champion, I believe, up until you were 18 years old. And I I, I got the sense that you you felt you know that that was a, t- a difficult time in your life when you had to break off with him, and, and when you moved to. Uh, 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 famously moved over with uh, David Pearson. What was uh, Mark uh, like uh, in terms of what, what, how, how, what was his influence on your game? Obviously, uh, a big one. Yeah, well, I, I was never, I was never actually a British junior. I won the British Junior Open in the under 19s Still right, to this please. day, the only walkover in the history of that final because oh. got the Sheffield Chefs to poison Ong Beng Hee the night before the final just so that I could win it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, no, I always, I always like to say that because you, know, you mentioned the 10 national titles as a, as a senior player and I didn't win a single one as a junior. So I always think that shows that you can develop at different rates and at different times. You don't have to be, you know, there's been many people like Mohamed Oshbagia, James Wollstrup that have been fantastic juniors as well. I was a little bit more of a late developer. You proved it again uh, getting to world number one at 30, didn't you? Yeah. And so, you know, I always say to people now, it doesn't matter if you're not good enough right now, as long as you've got the right attitude and work ethic and determination and surround yourself with the right people as well, then I think, you know, you've got half a chance. Um, um, but yeah, with Mark, probably even to this day in my squash career, that was the hardest decision and hardest part of, of my life. I worked with someone for 10 years and he put his life, and soul into sort of my squash and was always always there for me going above and beyond at the Abbeydale club at, uh, that I trained with him at in Sheffield and yeah it was incredibly gut-wrenching decision to I just Mark taught me three things in particular that have stood me in good stead one was the fitness I carried that on and he made he, he gave these brutal pressure sessions and turned me into being so fit and athletic on the court at a young age. Right, right. He he taught me to take the ball early on the volley. That's where that came from. Everything was about hunting the ball early on the volley. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and and he taught me a good lob. We used to finish every session with a lob. He was always talking about how it was an underused shot and underrated. and um, So he taught me those three things, which when you think about it, they're sort of, have always been synonymous with my play. Yeah. I sort of got all three of those from Mark Hornby. So I owe him, you know, an incredible amount. And I just felt that there was areas on the technical side that I had deficiencies in and weak areas and, and I needed to change. And I really enjoyed working with DP, David Pearson on the national squads. And yeah, I found that I'd worked with Mark for 10 years and it, it was very intense surrounding. It, it served me a lot of good. And I just got to a point where I'd stopped enjoying it to the same level and, and felt like I needed a change. And I didn't feel like it was a change I could make with the best of both. And sort of comp- I had to make a complete um, switch. Yeah. You know? and, and, that, and that was pretty hard when you've been with someone day in, day out for 10 years. I guess it was oh, sort sure. of finishing a, a relationship in, in many ways. And it was, uh, yeah, it, it was a gut wrench. And, I didn't probably see the benefits of it for two or three years, but I trusted what DP was trying to do and, and it eventually, you know, those subtleties came through. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, I was just, I was just going to say, um, I had something there, but I'll get back to that. But you rose, uh, uh, your rise in the pro ranks uh, 
was incredible through through David's guidance, and it's well chronicled. But um, I would say you're correct. Maybe you think I'm wrong, but I'd say your pro career spanned uh, three eras: um, the power nickel yeah. era, yeah, the Shabana and Matthew era, and then the Egyptian. I, I'll call it the Egyptian era. Would you right. disagree with that? Um, yeah. I probably would. It's a bit harsh on some of the others, but I know, I know what you're saying. But you know, through that middle ground, the second one you mentioned, there's there was obviously plenty of Egyptians. There was Rami. In oh, for sure, yeah. There was Darwish. Darwish. Yeah. That middle era, I would say, I'd say, I would say you bang on. I would say the middle era was Shabana, Gaultier, Willstrop, as well. Yeah. Uh, and then. Yeah, the more modern one when I was sort of then more of a season pro. The middle one was probably my best. Your best time, yeah. I learned so much being part of that distinctive era. I think if I'd have come on the scene even two or three years later, I never would have played the likes of Nickel and Power. Um, That that was kind of what I was getting at. Like, um, uh, you you had some great years in the Shivan of. uh, Darwish, Matthew, uh, Gaultier era, but during that, during the early years, during the Power Nickel era, what were the? What do you remember most about those years? Because uh, you could see then, uh, and I watched uh, quite a few of your matches back then, that you were, you were on your way to to doing something special, even then. There were, it was it was a different era to now. You know, everyone was incredibly tough. You know, the game was slightly more attritional maybe i think it's fair to mm-hmm. say yeah. you know it wasn't as dynamic and attacking as it is now um playing the, the likes of peter you know i pl- played and trained the likes of peter marshall and simon park and i remember going back to jason nicole and i, I played even in a psa event i played zarek yahan khan which is showing okay. my head you know <laughs> probably nearly <laughs> 50 now bless yeah, him. yeah well i learned so much from playing that era the toughness that it required to make it to the top you know the Stephen Meads the Mark Cairns of the world you played and trained with Del Harris it was it was a such a tough era I remember playing Dutch League when I was young and playing Billy Hadrill and some of these crazy right. Aussies that were well he, he was ultra ultra special ultra talented wasn't he there was, some, there was some talented players out there but the game was different you know everyone was I don't know. It was uh, there was lots. It toughened you up pretty quickly, shall we say? Yeah. When you come on the tour now, everyone's friends with everyone, and it's all everyone's best mates. You know, it's sometimes like a social club. You know, back in those days, there was some serious cliques and serious rivalries and oh, yeah. serious goings on on and off the court. And it was a real. You had to mature quickly and yeah. grow up quickly, and and it was a real baptism of fire. But I learned so much. Uh, from from playing those type of people, do you think that softened you up a bit? With, uh, having played um, in the the most recent era, with, with, you know, you mentioned it earlier, where the guys all get along so well and everyone is quite uh, pleasant and you know, more or less uh, polite on the court. Having uh, experienced that for a few years, did that uh, soften you up a bit in, in your later uh, years? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Good. <laughs> I think, um, you know, I always, always sort of played tough and never quite understood why uh, everyone was always best friends with each other when there's a job to be done on the court. You know, you have your people you get on with and your friends. But, yeah, I like to see, for me, an example was when Mohammed and Ali had a couple of matches when Ali was coming up where it got a bit contentious. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, brilliant, finally a rivalry to rival the Nichols and Powers and maybe the me and Rami or the me and James that they didn't necessarily get on with each yeah. other and that adds an extra edge to it but then two months later they were best of friends and hugging each other on the court again and you know some people like that I, I like for it to be have a little bit of an edge to it I don't mean them trying to kill each other no one wants to see that but just that little bit of a subtle edge that you saw in the Nickel Power rivalry absolutely um, yeah and the great rivalries between the Aussies and the Pakistanis and those rivalries for me are the, are those real ones that I, I personally love the most. 
Do you think uh, Do you think that has something to do with uh, just the Egyptian dominance of the game and how sort of how so many of them are uh, at the top and and all friends? Obviously, uh, I'm not sure if they they're actually that close back in Egypt, but I'm sure they must be. <laughs> there must be some something to that, uh, I guess. I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly see it in the girls. You know, they all support each other. They're all best friends, and you know, good luck to them. They foster a great environment that you see through junior events and despite them being incredibly competitive with each other on the court, they managed to stay friends off it. So, you know, very much power to them for, for being able to do that. You know, even at junior events, the parents argue with one another, but then go for a drink together afterwards. <laughs> yeah. It seems like, um, you know, certainly a cultural thing and, and one that's serving them very well. And, uh, you know, listen, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with everyone being best of friends. It was just never... It was never my goal to go on the squash tour to make friends. I wanted to go on the squash tour to be the best that I could be. Yeah, and it does sort of it does add a little bit of a little bit more intrigue to the match when there's a when there's a little extra something there as well. Sometimes I'm sure you know. Now I talk to Rami and we can laugh, and but you know there was there was there was some serious intensity when we played each other. Mm. I I personally thought that if I was his best mate, then he'd have an edge over me because I'd go soft and I used to find it harder playing against the people who you were friends with like a Pete Barker and an Adrian Graham it yeah. was sometimes hard to have an edge in those matches and um, the Alistair Walkers on Bang He's people I played and trained with and were really good friends with I found it sometimes hard to have that extra edge in, in those sort of matches so um, you know, there was no shortage of edge when I played Gregory Gaultier, for example, but we actually were both very alike in that same thing. Greg's a bit like me, you know, he, he fights to the end on, on the court, but then off the court, he can be your friend. And I think yeah. that's, that's sort of, we cut out the same cloth in, in that way. For sure. For sure. Now I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about, I think I did ask you this when we had our interview, but I'd like to revisit it again. You had uh, uh, when you played Jonathan Power, I forget which event it was, but it was a classic incident, the sweaty ball uh, incident. Oh, right, yeah. I was wondering if you could uh, revisit that for us. Uh, it, it was, uh, I think you served the ball and then uh, uh, Power at the end of the rally accused you of uh, having wiped the ball on your shirt before serving. Obviously, you didn't, and, and there's no... There's no, yeah, no clue <laughs> in, in the way the ball was bouncing off in, off the walls or anything that that would have happened. But uh, what, what happened there, and did you guys ever resolve that uh, ever? I mean, you know, with Jonathan, anything could happen on the court. You know? <laughs> yeah. In that same match, he couldn't shake my hand because he had cramp in his thumb or something, and the drama surrounding the incident was always something special with Jonathan. You know, it was always amazing to watch because you never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, um, I think it was probably the 2005 US Open, maybe. Mm -hmm. And it was at Harvard University. And yeah, we were playing. And I think I might have won in five. Uh, or he retired in the fifth. But yeah, he a serve skidded off the sidewall, I think. And he accused me of... He called it doing a Darwish. So I don't know. <laughs> doing a Darwish, okay. He thought that he thought that Kareem did from. I mean, I never saw that personally, but something he thought that Kareem did regularly. But you know, listen, anyone that knows or seen me play, you know, I play hard, but I play. I like to think I play pretty fair. You know, I don't take the double bounces or do anything of those sort of tricks. So we sort of. I took that. I took pretty big offence to that, and we sort of squared up a little bit on the court. Yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah. And uh, he got in my face, all McEnroe style, like he did. He did a Darwish on me, you know, like that. And I was like, <laughs> I told him to go and do one, and that what's he talking about? And uh, you know, it must have been a bit of sweat on the wall or whatever. And you stop wiping your hand where I'm trying to serve and stuff like that. He, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> but no, I was I was conscious in those days. You know, look, I'm a I'm a young player. I was probably 24. Yeah, you were young. You were young back then. So 24, 25, uh, yeah. and you know. I, I was not going to back down. You know, I showed them um, enormous amount of respect, the likes of Peter and Jonathan, and but never showed them too much respect. If that, if that made sense, I wanted yeah. to go out there and say, "Look, you're not going to bully me. You know, you might be this amazing player, this idol of mine, but you know, why can I not beat you? I'm going to stand up for myself and leave in what's right and and not sort of budge and 
and and give an inch and that's what I guess Mark Hornby, my dad, taught me and, and then DP later. So I was certainly not going to bow down just because it was Jonathan Power and he was a bit of a hero of mine, you know. He's, yeah. He accuses me of, of cheating. <laughs> I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to start apologising and, and sort of for that. I guess I stood up for myself and there's a, a quite an interesting picture of us squaring up, shouting in each other's faces yeah, about that, it. No, I, I, def, I remember that match uh, like it was, uh, I'm sure you do too. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a classic uh, encounter, as were many of those. Now, uh, you've had uh, many a great battle over the years with great players, like I mentioned, but uh, the word why, when rivalry uh, comes to mind, uh, obviously, you know where I'm going with this, uh, James Willstrip comes up. <laughs> yeah. um, now, there, uh, there was the, let me get through this for a second, there, there was the Nickel-Power rivalry, which uh, both Power and Nickel, I think they both stated it was more on-court rather than off-court, um, although the, me- the squash media tended to say there was something going on off-court. But would you say that the the squash media created the sort of acrimonious off-court relationship that existed, that supposedly existed between you and James? Or was there something a little there as well for a period? No, there was definitely something there. You know, we played on a couple of England teams together and basically, you know, didn't speak to each other (laughs) the whole time. And won a world title without pretty much speaking to each other. Really? Uh, Yeah. Which which was sad because it, it's not it wasn't my you know it's my personality to say you know what stays on court goes on court. James saw it a different way. You know I respect that. There was certainly one match I had with James that you know I, I documented this and was very honest about it in my book where I, I definitely overstepped the line, which was the 2009 British Open final. Yeah. Um, I guess I mean it's no defence, but the background to that match in the final is I basically had back spasms all week and don't even know how I was in the final and was essentially fighting everything in my body and was just trying to do anything in my power to get the win. I mean, that probably doesn't... The best best thing I can um, say was essentially the Aussie Aussie cricket. I was basically sledging him during the match. He was beating (laughs) me and I got frustrated and started sledging him and you know, I guess he he took the bait, I guess. Maybe not, because he was never one to say too many words, James. Right. But I obviously got to him and rattled him somehow. And, you know, the level of his squash couldn't maintain. And, you know, I somehow won the match. And I'm a firm believer that if I had have lost that match, James would have won, then nothing would have been made of it. But James did go straight out into the media with the with that. And then the rivalry was sort of born. Um, right, right. I definitely think there was something bubbling under previously to that. Um, there was, we sometimes roomed together. People are always surprised to hear that we sometimes roomed together on the tour in the early days. I remember as England, we roomed together a few times and we're, we're, we sort of got on. We were never close, but we got on and he'd sometimes come to Sheffield to train. And, you know, we were never close, but we realised that, you know, training together could help from time to time and we'd hit together on the tour. and. And yeah, and then that, that match ended all that. But I think it started even earlier that year or um, a few years earlier where I beat Lee Beachill. Uh, I beat James and then Lee Beachill back-to-back in mm. the English Open in Sheffield. And I then lost to Peter Nicol in the final. And, and Malcolm came up to a DP, who was a national coach at that time, and said, look, the England team is the strongest it's ever been. We've got a great chance of winning the world title. Nick is undermining the spirit in that team, the way he plays. And DP was a bit taken aback because, you know, he'd watched the matches and I'd beaten, I think I beat Lee for the first time. I then backed it up and beat James and I then lost to Peter in the final. So so DP asked Peter about it. You know, he was a senior pro. What do you think about this? What Malcolm said, you're the senior pro. And Peter Nichols said, there's absolutely no problem. He plays hard and he plays fair and he's a great guy to be around the team. I'd certainly bet for him to play in the deciding match for the team. You know, I mm. want him in the team. It's nothing wrong, no problem whatsoever, just completely nips it in the bud. But even then, sort of Malcolm was trying to create a problem that didn't exist. Mm. And, you know, that was going back some probably four years before the actual falling out 
public falling out happened, so there was always something bubbling. There was always the something thing, there then, yeah, yeah. Which was unfortunate, yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly the, the two of you uh, are, are get along or get on well enough now to, uh, to have this up. I think it's, is it st it's still ongoing, the up-and-coming Matthew Wilstrup head-to-head -head UK tour. Yeah, I'm just yeah. waiting for James to um, finally throw in the towel <laughs> and retire. <laughs> And so is that, that's something that you guys have uh, sort of, no, it's on paper it. more or less? Yeah, we've joked about it. Obviously not something that can happen too much when James um, is still playing on the tour, you know, because you have to base all your schedule around that. But it's certainly in the pipeline for, you know, we'll pull the trigger on it as soon as he, he retires. And hopefully, you know, we'll still be playing at a good enough standard by then that, we can make some entertaining events around the, the country uh, or around the world even. Why not? Yeah, yeah. But, well, I was going to add that. that right you took my next forward. question. I was going to say there must be interest from, there must be interest globally. Turn why, it into a multinational not? business. Why not? I think, you know, I've done, um, I've started a, a bit of a tour, uh, the Wolf on Tour um, <laughs> this year, and I've done 27 events between September and early January when we're talking now I've done 27 events around Europe North America and the UK yeah so yeah lot, I guess lots of events and I'm enjoying it and you know maybe that would be a way to um break in the next phase of that tour to have um have one reliving that rivalry that'd be like the stones going back out on tour wouldn't it well hopefully we're in uh, <laughs> Hopefully not wheeling us out, you know. <laughs> no, no, yeah. that was a joke. I'm sorry. No, no, bad I know joke. it was. Bad joke. I know it was, but no, I mean, I mean, Mick, you're Mick, not that Mick, old. Mick Jagger gets around that stage pretty well for a uh, for a sixty odd year old. But He's amazing. Hopefully I'm, moving, hopefully, I'm still moving better than Mick. Just <laughs> now, uh, now, Nick, uh, you're at the uh, you're at the TOC right now, as I mentioned earlier. So I'd like to get your insight on a few things uh, over there. Uh, now, it didn't go unnoticed that you were in uh, George Parker's corner for his uh, first round match. Uh, that was quite uh, quite an interesting battle. Um, the consensus was that, uh, at least on uh, squash stories and Twitter, that uh, George sort of deserved the conduct stroke uh, that was given to him, given the fact that there were previous warnings. Um, what were what what was your take on on that situation uh, as a uh, how it played out that way? Because it was a obviously it was a very tight match uh, at the point when the the conduct stroke was given. Yeah, I mean, George was lucky, you know, we spoke about it yesterday, he was lucky not to have got a conduct stroke earlier in the match than what he did. Right, you know, okay. Um, he's, George knows, he, he's actually, in, in his defence, he's come a long, long way. You should have seen what he was like previously. I've heard, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, but he's a talented player and a very strong and great, great really squash. Guy. Yeah. Really loyal guy. And I listened to the Rob Owen podcast with yourself. And, and Rob is obviously George's coach. And yeah. I'm just trying to help George a little bit on top of what Rob's doing with my England squash role. And, you know, he's, he's done tremendously to get to where he is. People just maybe might see it now and think he, he's, he's bad behavior and et cetera. He, he's come so far that I don't want to throw him under the bus and, and, and say because... He does need to improve. He knows that. He needs to mature a hell of a lot. And he, But he has come a long way and I can see improvements. So, you know, we need to keep working with him and keep positive and, and keep trying to improve his attitude that way. Yeah. And he, he knows. He just sees the red mist when he's on there and he knows what it's like. He knows that it doesn't look good. He knows it affects his swash as well, which is potentially the most important thing. Yeah. That, you know, it's all right what it looks like. but it also affects his squash. You know, if it look if it looks bad and he plays better, then you know, there's been plenty of people along along the years who sort of get away with that to an extent. When right. when it looks bad as it does and it affects his squash, then that's a complete double whammy and he needs to sort both sides of it. But he needs to sort it out for both reasons. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, but yeah, he know he knows that and you know we've we've had we've had we've had some words about what being tough looks like you know Matthew Cassini in that match showed me what being tough was all about it was internal it was like mm -hmm. a drive and a stubbornness internally uh, he, he was George, impressive he just didn't give up did he he just he kept going his business yeah. and he keeps going and he 
he's an incredible warrior, really. And uh, you know, George would do well. To, you know, that might that match might be the best best thing that happens to George because I think you know sometimes he does mistake being tough with being aggressive, and if he can channel that internally without losing the things that are likable about him, he has got a likable character. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's got. He's like a bit like Marmite. There are people that love his his aggressiveness. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I I personally think he needs to channel that within the ball and himself rather than outwardly to the ref and his opponent. And if he can do that, it'll be a hell of a talent. Oh, definitely. I, I like I like the way he plays. He has an aggressive approach. He's strong on court. And like like you said, if he can just sort of uh, deal with the the and he can't issues. lose that. He can't lose no. that aggressiveness. That's the key. I think he 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 was well documented. He came back from that ban and um, he was out for six months or whatever. And and he he was a reformed character and he wanted to be everyone's best friend and he wanted to just be nice to everyone. And he actually played squash pretty terribly in that period because he was pushing the ball around and and staying away from any sort of confrontation and and just was playing to about fifty percent of his capability because he was scared to boil over and right. you know that's no good for anyone you know he needs to play sort of on that edge to be the George Parker that everyone knows but the problem when you play on that edge is you know whether when you tip over it and you know he tips over it far too often right. at the moment but you know the likes of myself and Rob and David Camp in England squash you know are working with him and you know trying to put an arm around his shoulder and trying to um help him come through it because as I said he's a great guy and he's a great talent yeah yeah and uh, just in terms of the the officiating at the TOC you know what I've noticed and I've only seen a few of the matches but it seems that uh, this week and you might you might think I'm wrong here but the quality seems to have improved slightly uh, do you see it in this way or is it still as you said on your podcast more confusion and kind of, uh, which I agree with in the past few events, no one really knows uh, what call is going to be made. I still think there's a lot of confusion. I think I'd love to see a statement go out at the beginning of each tournament as to what we're looking for so that the crowd are informed. I'd love to see even the referee talk to the players at the beginning of each match and, and explain what, he or she's looking for absolutely well you you alluded to that on your podcast you talked about the incident in in hong kong with ali farag and i couldn't agree more the fact i mean the guy just can't come out and call a footfall and met what was it in the fifth near match ball well, he can. you know like you know like he can and he's very much within the rules to well, do yeah. so i just think a bit of common sense needs to be applied and get out ahead of these situations rather than suddenly you know, you got a situation in there was the Marwan and Diego match yesterday, where some of the movements off the ball, in the end, from both players, I, I believe Marwan instigated it, and then Diego caught fire with fire. It got very ugly, sort of in the fourth game yesterday, mm -hmm. and the referees have thrown out no lets and warnings and and this, that, and the other, and they should have just made it very clear, you know, what's expected. And then when you then make the decision on the back of that, then nobody can question it. When when you make a decision and then try to explain it, I think that that's when emotions are running high and it's very difficult to get that point across. I think we see it in rugby where the referee gets out ahead of the situation and it just creates that understanding for everyone. Even if you don't agree with it, you can understand their line of thinking. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, and uh, I don't know if you recall the in incident it was similar to the Farag incident in Hong Kong, but different um, uh, with Camille Serm when she uh, yeah. opened the door yeah. there. I mean, again, common sense would dictate that you would give her a warning, especially under those circumstances. When just the, uh, common sense, just, you know, that's, that's just that was a new rule. There's still time. a place. Yeah, there's still a bit of, there's still a place for that. You know, despite trying to implement the rules of space, there's always a place for common sense, and there's always a place for I don't know. There's always there's always a place just for a little warning first. I think um, yeah. understanding the human nature of it, and and I think, as I said, I think a big thing is it educates the crowd. I was sat around watching the Diego Marwan match yesterday, and the people around me had clearly not seen much squash before, and was struggling to understand what was going on. So I think we need to get yeah. better as a sport 
explaining the line of thinking behind decisions. Um, you know, let's say a player moves off the ball and completely takes the other player out, but they've hit a perfect length. A person who's never seen squash before wouldn't understand why that wasn't a no let because the shot was maybe too good. But trying to educate someone that actually that should be a stroke because they've not given their opponent clear line to the ball, that's a difficult one to explain to someone who's never seen the game before. But I think by explaining that before it happened, you'd you'd be able to get out in front of in front of that. The commentators would educate the TV audience and, yeah. and so on. Oh, definitely. Yeah. When there's all this confusion, when, when the, the people who know the game don't know what's going to happen, then, then you know there's a problem. Yeah. yeah I've, you know, however many squash matches I've played and watched over the years, I have no clue what's happening at the moment, which is, which is worrying. Um, it seems to be that leps have gone out of the game. Mm. Now, there seems to be a lot of uh, no let, like a lot of strange no let rules. No lets and strokes. And yeah, it yeah. seems to be a really fine line between a no let and a stroke. And to me, when it's a fine line between the two, just play a let and get on with the game. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's, it, it definitely makes you look at it from a coach in a different way as well. You know, the, you know you've got to teach players to completely move off the, in a different line than previously because there's also the video review to consider because there's certain decisions that look worse in slow motion on mm -hmm. a certain shot than they do in real speed you know you play a drop shot into the front and your opponent comes in the back of you and if it clips the sidewall and comes back in slow motion it looks like it's coming straight back to you and it's actually a stroke but in real speed it's probably a let because it happens at 100 miles an hour yeah. you know so it's there's an education with players and the type of movement you need to do for the bringing the review system into play as well. So it certainly changes the way you might look at a game as a, as a coach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess only only the in those situations that you the one where you just described where the ball is coming back and uh, directly at you. Only you know as a player if it was a, a stroke or not. I mean, we all know if we could have could have hit that ball directly to the front wall or not. Or and we know if it got past us too quickly, but but the video, there's, yeah. There's two decisions that, um, that stand out to in on the video review that um, the the review sort of makes them look better or worse. And one yeah. is the one where you hit a straight drive out of the front past yourself and the opponent's behind you. In yes. full speed, they would have taken it early, and it's probably a stroke. In slow motion it looks like you might have cleared. So that one's always a good one to review, for yeah. example, because in slow motion, you could turn a stroke into a yes let. And then when you're coming in, the one I mentioned before, when someone plays a kill or a drop shot, and it just clips the sidewall and then is coming out, in full speed, it's probably a, a let. And then in slow motion, you review it because in slow motion, it looks like the ball's coming back to both players when they've already sort of stopped and gone, oh, it's a let. And then the ball's travelling still. Yeah. And, yeah, they're the two clever ones to review, really. So you can always work, the players will always be looking at ways to work the system. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a lotto now, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But, no, it's a tough job, you know. I'm certainly yeah, for sure. back of the referees. I think that the decisions are always going to be tough to please everyone. I think that I was talking to Mike Riley the other day and he was very much on board with what I was saying, saying, look, you know, just the explanations just need to be better. Go on and talk to the players for 30 seconds before the match and say, what are you looking for? You know, have a microphone on when you're doing it. Like in boxing, why not? Yeah. And then everyone's in. And he was like, yeah, definitely. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully these sort of things can come in because it's always very subjective, isn't it? Whether you think it's a let or a yeah, that, that would be a little added uh, something to, to the game as well. Have the, have the referee speak to both players on court, tell them what he's expecting, what's a let, what's a stroke. Uh, and then that, that would uh, add knowledge uh, to the crowd as well. Yeah. It could, you know, and it, it, as I said, it's always going to be subjective whether or not you agree, but, but then at least, you know, the line of thinking going into it. So, you can understand the thought process behind the decisions yeah. then. Now, uh, on your podcast, uh, Nick, uh, what, what's the name of your podcast again? Um, it's called Holding Court. Holding Court. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, we have loads of different titles for the section, segments. So we have yeah, a yeah. left or a go-let. We have the both. We have out of court. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, hitting the neck, is that in there? Hitting the neck, yeah, in there. <laughs> so we have different sections that are a bit of fun trying to play. You've on got four, uh, four episodes, you're four episodes deep now, aren't you? We've done three. You've yeah. done three, okay, okay. Yeah. Now, on the most recent, the third one, which uh, I, I listened to uh, last week, uh, a few days ago, anyways, that you talked about the Tournament of Champions, you gave your predictions and, uh, and things like that, but you also mentioned what I thought was interesting, uh, your affinity with the... Uh, with the players' lounge, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, only because uh, they have free beer. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, how are they treating you? Uh, and who have you run into uh, uh, in the players' lounge? You know what? I've not been in it yet. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've been, uh, <laughs> been too busy. I've had, of, I've had a couple of things on early in the morning on a couple of days, and I thought that I wanted to still stay fit and get in the gym early and and use the jet lag to my favor whilst i'm still getting up early yeah. and feeling f quite fresh about it so i've sort of tried to avoid the late night drinking on the first few days okay so uh yeah i'm uh, I'm, sh I'm sh i'll keep you posted later in the week i'm sure i'll go in there and sample the farm beer on offer uh, as the week goes on right on well if, if you see jp in there tell him i said hi i, I played oh, him as a junior he'll, yeah. he'll, uh, he'll, in the if he's around i know you know, the likes of Peter Nichols usually in there. And it's usually quite funny uh, comparing old stories. For I sure. bet. I bet. Uh, over a few beers, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, now I'm going to lob you. Might be in there. Hopefully he does well in the tournament, but I definitely would share a beer with James later on oh. in the week if, we, uh, if he comes in. Yeah, yeah. He's got a tough uh, second. Well, he's playing Ali Farag, isn't he? Yeah. Very, yeah, very so tough. I don't no, actually like the way the draws work at the moment. I, I think yeah. that it's the format, you know, for me, the ladies' draws make more sense with the 16 seeds and those seeds getting the buy through to the next round and everyone else plays off for the right to, to play those. You know, that so why, why are they different then? I think they, they wanted to, this, the guys to be a little bit more random, a little bit more possibility for random draws. Um, hmm. Yeah, to me, both draws should be the same yeah, either way. Yeah. And, and it does make some strange matchups where you've got a James versus an Ali Farag in the second round. To me... Well, you've got Diego playing Marwan uh, yesterday. Yeah, those That's guys, you know, so the top 16 should be there and then the guys below that have to win a match to play, into, to play them. You know, it, it, that, you know that, that to me makes sense, but I'm, I'm not in charge. <laughs> right, right. Now, um, we mentioned earlier that um, I was going to lob you a few questions from, uh, from the Twitter sphere and the, the Facebook uh, Squash Story social media site. Uh, yeah. I've, got, uh, I've got one from Steve Gardner. He's from uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, good fellow, good squash player. Uh, he says, uh, can other countries in the world keep uh, pace with Egypt? And if so, uh, how can they go about how can they go about doing that? Well, I think they already are. You know, I certainly noticed mm. at the British Junior Open last week that, you know, the Americans are coming. You know, there's lots of different Asian countries. The Irish. Sorry? The Irish. One there's young one fella from Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I mean, as, as, a, as a whole, in terms of having several players, you know, Asian countries, some Eastern European countries are getting a lot better. South America coming up. But, I was particularly impressed with the American young players and the Asian young players, Malaysia, Hong Kong, Japan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, countries, are, you know, it looks to me like countries are catching up. Uh, you certainly don't have the depth. You know, Egypt seems to have 100 players in every age group. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, I was very, very impressed with how the countries uh, are coming to the force. So non-traditional squash countries as well. It was, it was really impressive to see. I saw a young girl from... Croatia that was really impressive and another one from Poland and yeah, yeah it, was, it was great it was really 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 good to see uh, I guess the uh, a lot of your peers and uh, Terry Linku, David Palmer those guys uh, Nick Taylor several others that are over there in the US now uh, amongst others are they're making uh, great inroads I guess in terms of, of uh, developing the game over there uh, at the junior level yeah I mean the, you know the I would imagine the best coaches in the world have gravitated to America. So, yeah. you know, it's probably, you could say it was only a matter of time before 
that that happened. But you know, historically, it's been about getting into college and um, you know then getting maybe a job in the city or something after that. Uh, but now you can see that some of the young players have some real ambitions in the sport, and you know that's filtering down to high school level and oh, yeah. obviously college levels got incredibly strong over the over the last few years and. Well, some yeah, of the facilities you see over there, like uh, like at Drexler or even at these uh, prep schools and high schools, on especially on the East Coast, they're amazing. Yeah, I've got I've got a um, a relationship, and I'm, I'm an ambassador for Berkshire School up in Massachusetts, where I do my summer camps. And oh, great! They've got a ten court facility in a high school. You know, wow. and it's not just in squash. You know, they've got two ice rinks. Um, you know, all the baseball diamonds, the track, the American foot. It's incredible, incredible facility. But yeah, 10 squash, 10 brand new squash court wow. complex. And this is in a high school, you know, it, school. it looks like a national training center. It, it's pretty impressive. That's great. Now, uh, second question here from a, a fellow by the name of Gaza May. I don't know if you might know Gaza. Uh, what's the toughest on-court session you used to do? On-court session. Yeah. On court. Yeah. Um, good question. Um, I saw the circuit training uh, stuff um, that you used yeah. to do. That, that, that was brutal. Yeah. They, I mean, they're obviously off court. So Yeah, but uh, uh, on court, he, he'd like to. Yeah. On court, I mean, you could, I mean it's, it was James's book, wasn't it? But it's always tough to beat shot and a ghost. That's yeah. pretty that's pretty hard. Um, so for, for people who might not know, you, you, you play, uh, you play, play a shot. One and then you ghost, yeah. And you yeah. do maybe, so you might start off with four and drives and you might do 12 drives, um, 12 ghosts into the back corner and then short rest. And you do the same on the backhand and you go through volleys and you go through volley drops and you go through back corner and you, you, you go through the different, different shots and then you ghost into different corners and that probably lasts an hour. I used to do one with Alistair Walker where you'd work one, rest one, and we'd just go for an hour until we'd go for an hour until the clock hit an hour, basically. So the coach would just feed the same set. I would do my set. I would then rest while Ali did his and, and we ran through that for an hour and that was pretty pretty intense. That was pretty tough. Yeah, um, yeah DP does a good pressure session where it's, 30 minutes of continuous work so you don't get a rest because DP doesn't feed as fast as some of the younger pros these days but <laughs> he it's basically he's like precise though right he's precise, precise. Yeah. he basically feeds you for two minutes on a drill and yeah. then you have to go into a 45 second ghost and you okay. do that for you do that for 15 minutes yeah and then you go straight into some shots in a ghost again with and then when you you your supposed rest period is ghosting and that's just <laughs> continuous you basically do 30 minutes without pausing for rest once so that's pretty tough wow okay well that's uh those are those are all tough they all sound tough now um tim whitaker asks uh, out of all of the world's under 20 players you've seen a few at the, at the british juniors i guess you just mentioned uh which of the players in the under-20 category would you uh, peg as being a surefire world number one? I don't think you can peg anyone as being a surefire. You know, there's no such thing. But, you know, as I said, I was impressed with the Ameri I was impressed with uh, Maria Stefanoni in the under-17s. Okay. Uh, American girl. Um, I think Hania El Hamami in the girls under 19 Egyptian girls very very impressive. Obviously Mustafa Asal. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know he he's he's very physical, but yeah. his squash is incredible. It's quite uh, dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, why you know why not one or two of the English players coming through? But you know some of the younger ones. Um, there's a lad in my academy under 19 who got to the final who hopefully has got a good future ahead of him called Nick Wall. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, I think, you know, Sam Todd as well. Sam got, Todd, yeah. He's got a good future. So, yeah, it's, it's good to see. And then, obviously, you know, I, I, I wouldn't dare, any of the under-15s and the 13s, I wouldn't dare put that moniker on them because, you know, they're still <laughs> no. very, very much in the formative years and they just want to be enjoying it and, and what have you. Absolutely. Well, Asal definitely, uh, I mean, he had, I think it was at 
maybe it was at the black ball event in uh, in Cairo where he had a, had a decent uh, showing there in the pro yeah. in the PSA. So uh, yeah. now Barry Lee on Twitter he asks a uh, uh, good question: How does one break being uh, uh, in a plateau stage in your game so that you can start uh, start improving again? And uh, when you were ever in that sort of in, under those circumstances, how did you go about? Uh, getting out of a rut yeah it's a good good question and um, I think you know some people might go about it two ways I think I think you either think right I'm gonna stick to what I'm doing and trust myself and, and it'll come good and maybe carry on doing the same thing too much or you go the other way and just completely say, right, that wasn't working, completely rip it up and, and start again. And maybe you're looking for that magic formula and trying to change too many things too often. Yeah. So I think it's probably better to try and get the best of both. You have to remember that core, maybe 80% of what you do and who you are and your identity and, and work with that. And then maybe that 20% you freshen up and change and add in new ideas and always try to evolve. And for me, that was the balance that I found that 80% was always pretty constant. And that 20% I'd always be adding to, um, you know, new things and new ideas and trying to freshen things up and so on and so forth. Even when things were going well, you're trying yeah. to always freshen up that 20% because, you know, you know that there might be that plateau around the corner. So you're always trying to do that. But I think if you got that, say, the other way around and went 2080, you're changing too many things at once. And then if something does work, it's hard to know what it was that worked. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Now, um, uh, I don't know if you follow uh, Squash Stories on Facebook. Do you? Do you uh, do you recently, know? I started. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I then you know, Jamie, you know Jamie Maddox then. Yeah, as a retired player, I figured that I, it's good to stay informed nowadays. Um, yeah. As a player, I used to sort of avoid um, things like that. When I was younger, I used to read some forums and I always it always bugged me if one person said a bad thing and yeah, I think yeah. it's best, I think it's best even if hundred people said a good thing, that one person would sit in the back of your mind. Yeah. And I just it was just best to not go on them. Um so I just didn't. But yeah, lately I've come back to it and I find there's some fascinating reading and opinions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean you see it now with with the players that are out there, the the generation of players now, you got the guys that, that every you know, some people like a certain player, some people don't. And they voice their uh, their opinions on there. Now, Jamie uh, had a great question for you. Um, he asks whether uh, you would consider releasing a pop record, and if so, <laughs> would you uh, go for a catchy ballad or a rap song? If I did a pop song, yeah, a, a pop record. If you were to release a pop record, would you go for a, a catchy uh, Rick Astley uh, ballad or a yeah. uh, or a rap? How about a rap? <laughs> Uh, in the in the verse and then a ballad in the chorus. There you go. Yeah, that, yeah there's a lot of that lately. I think. Yeah, there you go. I, I don't listen to much of that, but my daughters do. Yeah, there you go. So that's that's the one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'll well, do look, a duet. I'll do a duet with Mohammed El Shabagi. I know Jamie's a big fan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He is. He's a huge. He's a huge Shabagi. He can do no wrong, Shabagi. No, absolutely not. And he basically he can't. He's a fantastic player. But um, Nick, you've been fantastic with your time. I just want to say thank you again uh, so much. I know you've got to run. Uh, you're, you're going to go hit with uh, Laura Macero now in a little bit, and you've got to get a, a bit of food in your tummy. Although you should hit the uh, the, the Champions Lounge before uh, hitting with Laura. I will. I will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Will. But uh, uh, thanks so much. Uh, good luck with everything uh, uh, post uh, with with your retirement with the academy. Uh, with uh, all of your other ventures and uh, really enjoyed chatting with you, Nick. Thanks, Jerry. It's been fun. Take care. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was Nick Matthew. If you need him, uh, thanks so much to Nick uh, for coming on. Uh, we, uh, I really enjoyed that chat. Uh, so much insight, retrospection on, on the game and on uh, an illustrious career, the career that he had. Uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, thanks again uh, to Nick Matthew uh, for that. Now, um, there are some Friday fixtures, obviously, in the tournament 
tournament of champions draw in New York City, uh, both on the men's and women's side. Some intriguing matches on both, uh, particularly on the men's since they're a little deeper in the into the draw. Uh, one that stands out is the Battle of uh, Les Bleus, uh, the French, uh, two Frenchmen fighting, uh, uh, battling out uh, tonight. Grégoire Marché and Lucas Serm will, will play, so that should be uh, uh, an intriguing match. And then also uh, Mohamed Abulgar uh, against Tarek Momin. I think they've played recently, if memory serves, but um, a little bit uh, later on in the draw. They may have played at the Black Ball uh, event, but I, I might be wrong there. But um, anyways, as Nick uh, mentioned on the podcast, it seems a bit, a bit early for the two of them uh, to be playing. But uh, anyways, they are, and it should be a great match uh, there tonight. And on the women's side, uh, first-round matches, several good ones, uh, but one that stands out for me anyways is the uh, all-Canadian battle uh, between Danielle Letourneau and uh, Sam Cornette. Sam was on uh, on my uh, podcast uh, recently. Uh, didn't get to talk to her about this one because I hadn't realized that they're playing uh, one another in the first round. It would have been uh, interesting to hear what she uh, thought about that match because they've played several times, including... Uh, obviously Canadian national championships and throughout uh, their careers uh, on the pro tour. Uh, so that should be a really uh, interesting match. I'm not sure if we'll get to see that on uh, squash TV or not, but hopefully. Uh, and also uh, we'll get to see world junior uh, champion, Haniel Hamami. She'll be playing qualifier from Finland, uh, Amelia Soini. And uh, that should be interesting, but there are quite a few other matches, uh, early first round matches as well uh, on the women's side. So, uh, Brace yourself for some great squash tonight. Enjoy your squash. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Goodbye now.